0: Welcome to The Abandoned Carousel, the podcast where I take a deep dive into the stories of the most interesting abandoned and defunct theme parks and amusements in the world. I'm your host, Ashley. This week, we return to our intermittent miniseries on the surprising hotspot of theme park activity, the Adirondacks. I'm going to tell you the story of a legacy. In its abandonment, the park wasn't really much to look at, You might think of that famous quote, She doesn't look like much, but she's got it where it counts, kid. In the heyday, though, the park was magical, full of life and community, and it still touches people's hearts today. This week, we're talking about Gaslight Village in Lake George, New York. Well, it has been some time since we were last talking about the Adirondacks, but we're back today. You might remember my early episodes on Magic Forest, which is still operational with some changes, and on Time Town, long gone, back in the single digit episodes of The Abandoned Carousel. Well, here we are, all the way in episode 25, back again in upstate New York, back in Lake George, this time to talk about a shining gem of the past. Let's go back to a time of cool summer nights. Brightly lit rides glowing in the twilight, music spilling out from the speakers, and the shows at the opera house spilling their sounds out into the cool night air. This is the story of Gaslight Village, yesterday's fun, today. To start today's story, you need to know about the man behind it all. His name was Charles R. Wood, and he was dubbed by the IAAPA, or the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions, as the grandfather of the American theme park. Born in 1914, Charles was an entrepreneur who made his own opportunities. He started out his investments at a young age. He bought two houses at the age of 13 unthinkable and more or less impossible in today's world a century later. As he became an adult, he worked in aviation as an aircraft technician throughout World War II. After the war, it was an article in Reader's Digest of all things that planted the seeds for his future in the amusement industry. See, Charles read about a family called the Knots and their berry farm over in California. That article in Reader's Digest led him to Southern California so that he could see Knott's Berry Farm. Quote, I fell in love with what he had done. Mr. Knott had created the boysenberry, and Mrs. Knott cooked chicken and made boysenberry pie. People would swarm the place. Mr. Knott built a chapel and a volcano to entertain people while they waited for the dinner. He had started an amusement park. I came back full of ideas and wanted to get into the amusement business. The story goes that Wood then visited Albany, New York after seeing an ad for a skating rink for sale in the area. Now, the skating rink deal fell through, but he also then subsequently saw an ad for some property about 60 miles north, up in Lake George. And when he asked for directions, he was told to take Route 9 north. As he later said, quote, It was just so pretty, and I could just see nothing but opportunities. It was truly a fateful trip. Some consider Wood the pioneer of the tourism concept in Lake George. And maybe if he's not the pioneer, he at least had a heavy hand in the area. He started by purchasing property near Shroon Lake, which is 30 minutes north of Lake George. And he developed a resort there called Arrowhead Lodge. Then came a second property. It was originally called Erlo West, and it was a Queen Anne-style stone castle that Wood developed into what was called Holiday House, right there on Bolton Road in Lake George. Today it's called Sun Castle, and it's still in operation at the time of this recording. After years of development with these two summer resorts, though, Wood saw an opportunity See, he had realized something important about his audience. They were looking for more than just summer basics like tennis and boating. The resort wasn't fulfilling enough for the guests. They were looking for amusements. They were looking for something more. So, in 1954, a year before Disneyland opened... Charles Wood invested $75,000 in five acres of land off Route 9 between Lake George and Glen Falls. It was called Storytown, USA, and it was themed after Mother Goose stories, and it's generally considered one of the first true theme parks in the United States. Now, we'll get into the history of Storytown in another episode, but without a doubt, Storytown was a success. Guests came in droves, and one quote from Wood remembering opening day illustrated the fervor, quote, when we tried to count the money, it was blowing all over the place, End quote. Wood then invested the profits that he made right back into his park, and his success with Storytown paved the way for his future endeavors and future successes, including the topic of today's episode, which is, of course, Gaslight Village. In the tales of Gaslight Village, it's an underreported fact that Gaslight Village in Lake George was not actually the first Gaslight Village. Instead, the theme park had its beginnings in the hamlet of Pottersville, New York, some 28 miles north of Lake George. From the 1870s through the 1960s, the small town hosted a variety of amusements drawing thousands of people due to its proximity to transportation. And these were amusements ranging from religious fairs in the early years to dance halls, roller rinks, circus acts, and finally, the precursor to Gaslight Village. Specifically, by 1950, the town was promoting itself as, quote, the home of Gaslight Village, end quote, in newspaper advertisements. According to a 2007 retrospective article by Andy Flynn, the local Chestertown paper called The Summer Sentinel reported on the opening day of the original Gaslight Village, June 30, 1950, with the headline, quote, Gaslight Village, Gay 90s Spectacle Opens This Evening, end quote. They described the opening in the article, and they noted that the famed creative genius Ardo Monaco had a hand in the design of Gaslight Village. Now, not to get too much into a second tangent, but you know I love tangents. We should talk a little bit about Ardo Monaco briefly before we move on. We'll talk a lot more about him in future episodes on Storytown and other parks in the area. He was an important guy. He was a Hollywood designer. He worked for Warner Brothers and MGM and Walt Disney. He made toys for companies like Mattel. And he designed theme parks. Lots and lots of theme parks. He's best known for his work on Storytown and his own theme park, The Land of Make-Believe, but he had his hands in a lot of different theme parks in one way or another, including, as it turns out, Gaslight Village, even from the very beginning. A July 1950 article clearly notes that the Gaslight Village Park in Pottersville was designed by Ardo Monaco. Additionally, Early promo materials for Gaslight Village in its later version used Arto Monaco's sketch for the original layout and concept for Gaslight Village. And it had his trademark designs, perfect, charming, but a little askew at the same time. And the original buildings, too, bear this same aesthetic. So back to the amusement park, back to Pottersville, New York. Milt Selleck was the man behind the original Gaslight Village in Pottersville. He owned the nearby Glen Manor Hotel for five years prior to the opening of the new amusement park. And it was located at this resort called Under the Maples, which was later converted to a campground called Smoke Rise. Described by the paper at the time, quote, a movie set quality pervades the place, and you find yourself transported to an old village square complete with a candy shop, village store, firehouse, and jail. End quote. There was an outdoor music hall with live entertainment, a carnival for children, and a miniature train called the Adirondack Limited. The park served all kinds of food and drink, including cocktails and steins of beer. There also was, of course, a carousel, and you know I love to talk about carousels, the 2000 retrospective article calls it Clint Swan's 1903 merry-go-round from Kansas, but I was unable to find any additional detail relating to that exact description. The July 1950 article that I was able to find about the park describes it thusly, quote, vintage of 1890, complete with prancing steeds powered by steam, no less, end quote. The train and the carousel were both set on terraces above the road to attract the eye to the park, And between them, a wide gravel-paved road led to the main part of the park. Another article about the park dated to June 1950, and it went into greater depth, describing much about the Pottersville Gaslight Village that would be familiar to any fan of the later version of the park. Keystone cops, photo studios offering old-fashioned tintypes, a penny arcade, museum, dueling pianos, a barbershop quartet, and of course... A magician. The evening program there began with the quote-unquote lamplighter's serenade, where the gaslights around the village square were illuminated, followed by a gaslight waltz routine, and then an evening play. <clears throat> the July 1950 article concludes by saying that the Pottersville Park is, quote, too good to miss, end quote. Despite this delightful description, the Pottersville Gaslight Village reportedly lasted only a single season. That summer was apparently wet and cool, and that was the death knell for a park relying on primarily outdoor entertainment. Just over a year after its glowing report on the park's opening, the Summer Sentinel paper published another article about the park, now calling it a ghost town. Quote, Today the square, a false facade in the Hollywood style, stands gray and mournful behind Glen Manor. Only the entrance, visible from Route 9, still glistens, but even that is neglected, forsaken in the greenery, creeping up its very sides. End quote. Now one person has posted images of this place to a historical Facebook group, scanned in from a grandparent's photo album. I'll include a link in the show notes, as always. And you can find that at theabandonedcarousel.com backslash twenty five. The photos are noted as dating from 1949, which does conflict a little bit with the information given in the newspaper articles. So it's possible that these images of the gaslight village were from prior to the park's opening instead of after its abandonment. Still, it's interesting to see such rare pictures. And, no matter what, the park did not survive for long in Pottersville by any account. Charlie Wood purchased the Pottersville Gaslight Village, quote-unquote, kit and caboodle in 1958, seven years after its reported abandonment there in Pottersville. Now, Wood would have been fairly familiar with the original park. Not only was he friends and business associates by that time with designer Ardo Monaco, but he would have driven past Gaslight Village in Pottersville as he drove to his Arrowhead Lodge on Shroon Lake property. How exactly the buildings made the travel 28 miles south isn't quite clear, but it is clear that they did move in some fashion to their more well-known location, Lake George. By the time Gaslight Village officially opened in Lake George in 1959, Charles Wood had reportedly invested over half a million dollars in the park. Now, not only was there the cost of moving property from Pottersville, no, Charles Wood actually had to move a small mountain. See, the location of Gaslight Village in Lake George was on the site of the former Delaware and Hudson, D&H, Railways Freight House. Now, this was where the d Railway terminated, and trains turned around on what was called a balloon track. Charles Wood purchased the former railroad property sometime in 1958. On the site was also a sawmill with a huge sawdust mountain, and under Wood's direction, the sawmill was moved. The sawdust pile and the large hill or mountain on the south side of the property were taken down with heavy machinery, finally lending a lake view to the now-level site. A May 1959 article describes it thusly, quote, The visitor sees only beauty where unsightly products of early industry had been before. Moving the hill revealed the unforgettable beauty of Lake George. End quote. Now, Wood had his blank canvas, and he could build his newest theme park, Gaslight Village. It was, from the outset, an adult-oriented amusement park. Wood's first theme park, Storytown USA, and later Ghost Town, had already been open for five years. Like I said earlier, this park predated even Disneyland by a year, and it was themed around the idea of Mother Goose Rhymes. Storytown, though, as the theme might suggest, was aimed at younger children, and it was only open for sort of the earlier daytime hours of the day, closing by like five or six. Gaslight Village, at its heart, was the complement to Storytown, aimed at adults and older children, open afternoon through the late evening. Now, the earliest press release that I could really find for Gaslight Village in Lake George was from a July 1959 Queensbury Hotel and Motor Inn News article or press release, and it was posted on the invaluable Gaslight Village Lake George, New York Facebook page. And I'm going to be referencing this group or page a lot. If you are at all interested in Gaslight Village, this is the place to be. They're a wealth of information a wealth of photos and videos, and just the kindest people that you can possibly find. So, this press release described the park as it was opening in 1959. It was described as combining, quote, the fun of an amusement park, the entertainment of stage and screen, the enjoyment of participating in activities, the educational value of a museum and all the romance of the gay 90s in an authentically recreated setting. End quote. Now, I suppose I've breezed past it enough times that we ought to have a brief discussion on the term gay 90s, since it's that park's theme. Now, obviously, this term has perhaps a bit of a different connotation nowadays. Yes, if you Google it, there is a gay bar by this name in Minneapolis now in 2019. The term in its historical definition was coined in the 1920s and 1930s, and it was used to describe the decade of the 1890s with people at the time longing for a comfortable past in the middle of the Great Depression. And in the UK, the decade is apparently referred to as the naughty 90s. It was a time thought of as decadent, full of scandals, as well as the beginning of the suffragette movement. It was a time when people like Oscar Wilde were at the height of their popularity. Despite the plight of the massive lower class and the actual poor economy of the decade, which included the 1893 panic and the depression that set in for most of that decade, popular culture remembers this period for its pleasant aspects. It's remembered for the icons of a new age. It's remembered for steam-driven machines the 1893 invention of the Ferris wheel, Nickelodeon movies, vaudeville, and of course, glimmering gas light. Gas lights were initially introduced in the 1810s, but they didn't actually reach widespread use until the mid-1850s or later. And it really wasn't until the invention of the gas mantle, this device, in 1891 and commercial production of the same in the next year in 1892 that it really... Became widespread because it became safe. And so the invention of the gas mantle is likely the reason behind our association of the gaslight with this era. The gaslight mantle remained an important part of street lighting until the widespread adoption of electric lights in the early 1900s. And of course, other more broad names for the same gay 90s era are the Victorian era, which ran from 1837 to 1901 the Gilded Age, which ran from 1870s through 1900, and the Belle Epoque, from 1871 to 1914. Given all this, then, we can move back to Gaslight Village with a better sense of historical context. The catchphrase? Yesterday's fun today. The park in its initial conception, as seen in the Pottersville version and in the Arto Monaco sketch, was solely about the village aspect of Gaslight Village, and wasn't about a theme park as it was with rides. Blueprints reportedly called for the eponymous gaslights every 40 feet along the park streets. There were horse-drawn trolleys, horse and buggy rides, and a vintage double-decker bus. A 1912 steam locomotive was reportedly shipped from Louisiana up to the park via Chicago and then to Glen Falls. The 1959 version of the park had a 1900s drugstore, which was reportedly purchased complete with interior furnishings, cabinetry, and even old, original pharmaceuticals. Then there was a bicycle shop featuring over 30 different types of bicycles, some as old as 1867. Reportedly, the shop contained an example of almost every type of bicycle that was available to date, quote, from the first glider to the old high wheelers, end quote. Many of these bicycles were purchased from the so-called Tracy Killiam Transportation Collection by Charles Wood in 1958 and had previously been on display in Sandy Creek, New York, some 200 miles due west. There was a musical museum featuring, quote, many rare and priceless musical-making devices of the old days, end quote, such as lap organs and melodians from the 1830s, as well as an 1891 Edison home phonograph. Something called the Ladies' Emporium featured, quote, the only known matching collection of fashion dolls, end quote. Now, these weren't paper dolls or toy dolls. These were actually more like 50 life-sized figurines displaying clothes of the decade, quote, showing what Fifth Avenue grand dames wore in the time of our grandparents, end quote. And then there was the antique auto collection, which was the predecessor to the cavalcade of cars, which we'll get to. But in the early stages, these were the cars that were displayed on the street for people to climb in and look at and just as general scenes heading. There were 1908 buggies, 1922 and 1925 Model Ts, and an 1882 horse-drawn fire truck. There was a penny arcade where guests could challenge one another with old but playable penny arcade machines. There was the Palace Theater. This was the home to silent films on endless loop, and at the outset, these were reported to be from the quote-unquote original Edison collection, things like Charlie Chaplin. And then, of course, there was the Opera House. It reportedly had the largest dance floor in the area. Some accounts say it was roomy enough for a thousand people. From the outset, it had both an indoor stage and an outdoor stage. The latter looked out onto a beer garden where guests could enjoy a beer stein with their stage show. The outdoor stage, though nice in concept, was reportedly difficult for people in rainy or cold weather, as had been the issue with the Pottersville Park. So after some time, it's reported that it was closed or used less frequently, and only the interior of the opera house was said to be used with regularity. The stage shows themselves, from the beginning, were the old-time melodramar, or melodramas, where there were heroes and villains. The audience was expected to participate at minimum with boos and hisses, shouts, and catcalls. This was the park as it was on opening day in 1959. On May 31st, 1791, Thomas Jefferson wrote in a letter to his daughter, Quote, Lake George is without comparison the most beautiful water I ever saw, formed by a contour of mountains into a basin, finely interspersed with islands, its water limpid as crystal, and the mountainsides covered with groves, down to the water edge, here and there precipices of rock to checker the scene and save it from monotony, end quote. Lake George is a small summer resort town up in the Adirondacks. Its population as of 2000 was apparently under a 1,000. However, summertime population is reported to swell over 50,000 people, 50 times the normal population. So it might not be surprising then the high concentration of theme parks in the surrounding areas of Lake George, especially in the days of before inexpensive air travel when most vacationing was done by car. A a three-and-a-half-hour drive from New York City? It wasn't a big deal at the time. Charles Woods Gaslight Village in Lake George saw success after its first year. It was a great complement to the summer resorts of the area, and it was able to continue on and grow as an amusement park. Now, one of the immediate additions was rides, As noted earlier, the park was originally intended to be just the village, or maybe just focused around just the village, with museums and displays, shows and entertainment. From the outset, there was always like a boardwalk with sideshow-type attractions, like the Wild Man of Borneo and Funhouse Mirror Mazes. But with his theme park knowledge, given the years of experience that Wood already had from Storytown, USA— it's not surprising that rides were soon added. And and let's be honest, some of the rides may have always been there. You know, we already talked uh, about the carousel and the small train at the Pottersville Gaslight Village. It's possible that um, Charles would purchase the carousel from the Pottersville Gaslight Village, but it's not really clear. Some of the articles about the park are very inconsistent, and they date the carousel back to 1800, which is almost certainly not correct. The first steam-powered carousel wasn't invented until 1861. But it does seem that the park did have multiple carousels in its lifetime. Several accounts report that the earliest uh, carousel at the park was a unique rocking horse carousel, which was reportedly sold in parts across Europe prior to the park's closure. And one online commenter references this as a Parker carousel, while another calls it a Denzel carousel. There's not great consistency about which type of carousel it was or where it went. The auction catalog for the park's eventual demise, which we'll get to, dates to 2000, and it does seem to combine some Storytown rides as well as Gaslight Village rides. While multiple carousels are listed in the auction catalog, none were this unique-sounding one. But we are getting ahead of ourselves, so let's get back to the operational history of the park and talk about some more rides. In or around 1968, after the park had already been open for a decade, it's said that the Steeplechase Bicycle Carousel came to Gaslight Village. Now, it's not clear about when exactly this came. I've seen sources saying that this ride opened with the park or that it came to the park around 1968. But either way, the Steeplechase Bicycle Carousel was one of the more interesting rides that ever was at Gaslight Village. This was said to be one of the oldest operating flat rides at one point dating back to the Steeplechase Park at Coney Island. It seems likely that the ride was purchased after Steeplechase's ultimate closure in 1964, and it's likely that the ride is probably dating back to early 1900, given the history of Steeplechase at Coney Island. I'll include a link to pictures of the ride or a very similar ride at Steeplechase, and I'll include a link to the ride at Gaslight Village. The concept was simple. It was a carousel powered by the human action of pedaling bicycles. The faster you and your fellow riders pedaled, the faster the carousel went. The ride was reportedly quite the draw, finally being removed from Gaslight Village only when someone fell off and got hurt while the ride was in operation. After this, the rides really started coming fast and furious. It's noted that a paratrooper and a green monster, which was an octopus ride, arrived in 1969. And then there were the usual parade of theme park staples that you might expect to find at any carnival fair or theme park. And they moved in and out of the park as well. There were a ferris wheel, there were bumper boats, a scrambler, a tip top, which may or may not have been called the shaving mug, a roundup, a tilt a whirl, and a trabant. There were kiddie rides like the turtles and a classic Red Baron airplane ride. There was a swinging boat space shuttle ride and a classic flying bobs ride and bumper cars and a flying trapeze swing ride. Apparently, Wood was notorious for moving the rides around, not just physically at the park, but between Gaslight Village and Storytown. And this does add a little bit of the confusion when you're researching the exact rides at the park. Now, if you're interested in a rabbit hole and want to do some research in your spare time, which I'm sure you have lots of, you should take a look at the spaceship-like Futuro house. One of these once sat in Gaslight Village's parking lot between Gaslight Village and Wax Life across the street, which Wood also owned. And despite not technically being a part of Gaslight Village, many people do fondly remember the quote-unquote spaceship. Of Finnish design and origin, less than a hundred of these were built in the late 60s and early 70s, and there's a delightful website dedicated to tracking the once and current homes of these spaceship-like houses. I recently saw one while driving down I-55 in Illinois, right on the side of the road at Pink Elephant Antiques, which also has a muffler man along with many other cool, giant fiberglass figures. I'll include a link to an article with a dynamic map showing every known remaining Futuro house, in case you're interested in tracking one down that lives nearby you. An iconic ride at the park was the antique car ride, and it was located right up front. Think Disneyland's Autopia, but with vintage cars from the 1890s. The cars were built by the Aero Development Corporation, which was in fact involved with a lot of Disney, and it was there from the beginning advertised all the way back in a 1959 billboard magazine according to a history of the company the official description for the cars from the company was quote, "open-topped antique cars reproduced to 5/8 scale provide a pleasant ride through an old-fashioned country setting each car seats up to 5 and anyone 10 years or over can drive a single pedal accelerator and brake combined controls the one-cylinder engine that pushes the cars along at a top speed of four miles an hour, End quote. Now, in the early days, it's said that there wasn't even a guide track. Alas, when a guest tried to take a car on a joyride off the track over to the opera house, a guide rail had to be installed. Online recollections often mention this ride, including the thrilling aspect of a young child being able to drive a real car. Employees remember the car ride as being a fun place to work, particularly compared to the monotony of the kitty flat rides elsewhere in the park. And one story I saw online from a former employee on the Gaslight Village Facebook page tells of how the cars had very small gas tanks. And they were often running out of gas in the middle of a drive, so employees would have to run out with a gas can to refill the tanks. And... The story goes that the engines were often very hot, as is not surprising. It is a car in the middle of summer. And the common slight spills during the fill process would catch the cars on fire, much to the consternation of guests. Reportedly, it was no big deal. It was just a fun event. The flames were batted down. The car was fine. Guests were on their way. And everyone would cheer. The next attraction I'm going to talk about was a here again gone again sort of deal and it was called the Mystery House. Of course you know I love a good rabbit hole here on the abandoned carousel and we have that with the Mystery House. See one theory is that it was originally called Casa Loca and that it originally lived at Freedomland in the Bronx. Now, I will tell you that Freedomland has a future episode lined up for it already, and it has since the moment I heard of this place. This park is really interesting. It was only open for five seasons, five years, but it has an incredible wealth of knowledge about it. It has this huge Facebook page, fan page, and it even has a recently released 300-plus page book about its history. So you can see why I'm going to talk about this park at some point. Briefly, Casa Loca was a classic disorienting walkthrough attraction. It's a crazy house. It's designed to trick the senses. From an article on Patch.com, the attraction was described thusly, quote, We went in on one end, not knowing what to expect, and came out the other, amazed by what our senses told us was impossible. Simple disorientation and gravity created an illusion that had cans rolling up a table and out a window, as well as pool table balls that went uphill. End quote. Freedom Land closed in 1964, only 5 years after its 1960 opening. There are some strong connections between Freedomland and Lake George, as Charlie Wood purchased quite a few rides and attractions from Freedomland and placed them in Storytown USA. And it's often speculated that Casa Loca went to Gaslight Village where it was renamed The Mystery House." Ultimately, however, this actually turns out to be speculation and coincidence. I've been in contact with Mike Vergentino, who wrote the book on Freedom Land's history, and he's learned that Gaslight Village already had a crooked house, the mystery house, in 1964 while Freedom Land was still in its last season and still in operation. Therefore, it's just coincidental. Freedom Land's Casa Loca didn't actually go to Gaslight Village after all. Still, though, a delightful attraction a at crooked house is, in any iteration. A former guest commented online about the Gaslight Village version of the attraction, saying, quote, Hey, does anyone remember the mystery house? From what I remember, first you passed by some funny mirrors where you saw yourself either short and fat or stretched out. Then you entered a room where everything was lopsided and out of proportion, and you got dizzy walking through it. I really enjoyed that one. End quote. The attraction was said to have been removed a few years prior to the park's closure, perhaps in 1987 or 1988. Some recollections online mention a singing bear with some degree of uncertainty. It's true, however, that for a period of time, a set of animatronics operated at Gaslight Village going under the name Gaslight Jamboree. This attraction operated in the Palace Theater during its later years, where the silent movies ran. One of the animatronics was called Friendly Freddy, and it was a 1977 animatronic black bear with a guitar. He performed with two of the so called Wolfpack 5 characters Wolfman, who was a Wolfman, and Fats Geronimo, who was a keyboard playing gorilla. You might think about any of the bears at the Country Bear Jamboree over at Disney, and you'll get the same gist of what kind of characters these were. And this was actually a surprising rabbit hole for me to go down in my research. I wasn't expecting this one at all. All of these animatronics, and there were many, many, many in the series, were actually a predecessor to a show called Fire Explosion, And this was an animatronic band that performed in showbiz pizza places, as well as other restaurants and shopping centers, between 1980 and 1992. Now, you may or may not remember showbiz pizza, but you probably know what they became, because between 1990 and 1992, all showbiz pizza locations were converted to Chuck e cheese It's far beyond the scope of this podcast, even when I'm off in a tangent— But there's some great details about the process of what's called concept unification, where showbiz became Chuck E. Cheese, and it's worth spending five minutes on if you've got them. The remaining animatronics are still popular today as, surprise, surprise, viral YouTube sensations. Who knew that there were such a huge fan base for 30-year-old animatronic bears? Take a look at the links in the show notes and check them out. It's definitely interesting. Alright, let's get back to Gaslight Village proper. By 1974, it's said that the Cavalcade of Cars opened at Gaslight Village to display Wood's collection of automobiles. Now, at one time, the Cavalcade and Gaslight Village were actually two separate attractions with two separate entrance fees. But Charlie Wood wasn't seeing the numbers that he wanted. The story goes that one day, Mr. Wood came in and had the prices changed for Gaslight Village, and dropped the admission price for the Cavalcade of Cars. Bam. Suddenly, the Cavalcade of Cars was part of the Gaslight Village admission price. Visitor numbers shot up. Now, I'm not really a car person, so I'm not going to go into huge detail here, but apparently the cars were really quite special, especially for their time. There was a 1933 Duesenberg once owned by Greta Garbo. There was a car shaped like a giant can of V8 juice, and some accounts say that it also wants dispensed juice as well. An evil Knievel motorcycle was a big draw, and there was also a former Mobile, although that may or may not be the correct name for this type of car. There was a car from the Munsters, and a car with two fully functional barbershop chairs. There were three large model ships from the 1970 film Tora, 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 and there was a model from ben Hur. And there's what I think is the coolest of them, which is one of the chitty-chitty bang-bang cars used in the 1968 movie. And the version that was at Gaslight Village was the version with quote-unquote wings. It featured wax models of Dick Van Dyke and the other cast members, and was apparently the model used in all the promotional imagery, posters, and merchandise for the movie, as well as many of the scenes in the movie itself. One of the most unique rides at Gaslight Village was the flight to Mars. This ride was quite rare, actually, and it has a fun history worth talking about. The Laugh in the Dark Dark Ride History page has a nice article on the ride. Anton Schwarzkopf produced these rides in Europe. And you might know that name better from his incredible roller coasters. And you might even think of a previous ride that we've talked about, the Jetstar, that he was the designer for. There were only a few of these dark rides ever imported to the U.S. There was either two or three, as far as I can tell. And they came by the way of a man called Mickey Hughes. He was a guy who liked to showcase new rides at his theme parks in order to encourage imports of the rides. So he was trying to get sales. The flight to Mars was a delight. It was a two-story dark ride with a coaster dip visible from the exterior. Theming was vaguely outer space, with some versions of the ride more elaborate than others. Riders rode in small two-person space cars throughout a twisty turny track. The thrills came from the spooks inspectors ready to pop out at you in the dark. You might think about Joyland's Wacky Shack from one of my previous episodes, or any of your other favorite dark rides. Like I said, though, there were only a couple of the rides ever actually brought to the U.S., and I actually can't find any info on the rides operating elsewhere in the world. It's known that of the rides in the United States, one went to Astroland in Coney Island in 1964, and another went to Palisades Park in New Jersey. Palisades Park will be a great topic for a future episode with a long and interesting history, but for today, know that it was one of the most visited parks ever. It closed in 1971, and it was bulldozed for high-rise condos. Astroland is said to have sold its flight to Mars around the same time that Palisades Park closed, both of them in 1971. From here, we know that one of the rides, the Astroland-Coney Island one, went to a place called Adventurer's Inn, which was a small park in Flushing, New York. And again, this is another good topic for a future episode. At Adventurer's Inn, the flight to Mars ride was notable for having forever, always, a typo in the large letters spelling out the ride's name. Instead of flight, F-L-I-G-H-T, it spelled it F-L-I-G-T-H. This park shuttered in the mid-70s, leaving the rides in place, abandoned, until everything was bulldozed in 1978. I'll include a link to some beautiful, but incredibly sad, abandoned images of this flight to Mars. Take a look in the show notes. Gaslight Village? Remember we're talking about Gaslight Village? I know, we get off on such fun tangents, don't we? Gaslight Village. They purchased their flight to Mars from Palisades Park. It was placed in between the Ferris wheel and the bicycle carousel, and there it thrilled guests for years. Guests remember it for being scary for a tween or a teenager, and a nice little dark ride for an older set. Ultimately, Flight to Mars was sold well prior to the closure of Gaslight Village. Some sources report that it may have gone to Columbia, And other sources say that the ride was demolished before it ever left the park. Unfortunately, it's not really clear what happened to this model of flight to Mars. What I haven't mentioned yet is that there was a third flight to Mars, and this one is pretty well documented its history. It went straight to the West Coast. It was built for the 1961 World's Fair in Seattle. It went into storage after that year, but by the late 1960s, it was rebuilt on its original site. And that Flight to Mars ride stayed in operation through the late 90s, until the decline of the surrounding Fun Forest Amusement Park. And subsequently, it was replaced by what is now the Experience Music Project, if you're ever up in Seattle. This Flight to Mars was sold and now operates to this day at the State Fair of Texas in Dallas, Texas although some recent accounts say that it's in storage now in the late 2010s. Regardless, you can find actual operational videos of this ride on YouTube. Um, The theming is a little bit different from the very elaborate detailing that was once present in the Gaslight Village version, but it's nice to be able to have this sort of tangential sibling piece of the park still today. Every story about Gaslight Village talks about the aspect that really, truly made the park special—the people and the sense of community. Gaslight Village was truly about the performers, the performances, and the shows, because they were the heart of the park, and they were what made Gaslight Village unique. During its heyday, the park ran a 13-week season— from June until a week after Labor Day, operating 2 p.m. until 11 p.m. daily. The Oleo acts began performing music, such as piano or guitar, right at 2 p.m. Then there were singing waiters and waitresses that would begin to sing until the first show began at 2.30. The entertainment then ran continuously, revolving around the different areas and stages at the park. And of course, there were a wide variety of performers. There were people like Joe Jackson Jr., the clown on the bicycle. Joe was famous for his broken bicycle act, which he'd inherited from his father. And surprisingly, he was particularly popular in Sweden, of all places. He performed at New York's Radio City Music Hall, La Scala in Berlin, Moulin Rouge in Paris, and Tivoli Garden in Denmark, and had appeared on many television shows, including Ed Sullivan's. Then there were the plethora of ice skaters performing on the small ice rink that was actually located in front of the Opera House stage inside the Opera House. There were an incredible variety of skaters, and I'm sure I will miss a few, so please forgive any that I don't mention. Howard Bissell and Jerry Farley were well-known. They performed together on the ice, sometimes with Joe Jackson Jr., and they did something called a death spiral on the small ice that was apparently quite breathtaking. The ice rink was filled with skate shows of all varieties. There was Randy Cora and Ellen Tia. There was Kim Reel. One year, there was even South Pacific on ice. There was Ron Urban's Ice Review. According to a magazine article from The Time, this particular show was actually the first ice show to ever visit the White House. And then there were animal acts Kay Rosiere and her big cats, Carol and her Bengal tigers, Frank Mogirosi and his lions. And there were other acts. There was Mario Manzini, the escape artist. There was the jump and jack duo performing amazing trampoline acrobatics that included, at one time, a hair raising high dive onto a giant sponge. And, though perhaps not culturally correct, a popular act at the time of the park's heyday was the Midget Wrestling Championships and Bob Hermine's Midgets Show. Magic and ventriloquism also were very popular from people like the very fine Bob Carroll. Now let me stop here and talk about Bob for a minute. If you look into the park enough, you will see a common name pop up, and that's Bob Carroll, Bob worked at Gaslight Village for 20 years, beginning in 1969, with a few seasons uh, off at Timetown in between. And I've been really privileged to have the opportunity to be in contact with Bob, discussing Gaslight Village and what makes the park special and all of his memories. He's one of the people in charge of the Facebook page Gaslight Village Lake George, New York, and it's Bob's photos that will appear on the show notes page and social media posts for this episode. I've really appreciated talking to him. Bob wore so many hats throughout his 20 years at the Gaslight Village. He did the old-time pie fights, emceed at the Opera House, did park announcements, etc. He eventually became Opera House manager, and he performed his act multiple times per day on the outdoor stage or inside at the Opera House. He's had quite the successful career as a ventriloquist and a magician since then, He even got a stint in the Guinness Book of World Records for telling jokes for over 24 hours straight. Bob told me that he wouldn't be where he is now without the start that he got at Gaslight Village from Charlie Wood back in the day. Back to the performances at large, there were Keystone Cops. Keystone Cops themselves were a holdover from the Pottersville version of the park and continued to be a constant presence in the park throughout the time at Lake George. They provided skits and guest interactment throughout the park, you know, localized in the bandstand and different areas, much to the visitors' delights. At one point, Bob Carroll told me that he did a medicine show where he sold guests the magic tonic of a bottle of water. Slapstick comedy and just funny little jokes like this on the lawns of the town square were one of the many ways that the entertainment really made Gaslight Village special. The Keystone Cops, along with other entertainers, were also a key part of the daily pie-in-the-face skits, which you heard me mention just briefly before. Whipped cream or shaving cream pie fights that were staged messily in between various performers each night, with sometimes reportedly as many as 70 people involved at a time. Of course, the pie fight is a vaudeville staple. You know, you can think of times of silent movies when jokes needed to come across without sound and they were popularized by comedians like Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges. I don't have time to go into it here, as is my common refrain, but I will link to you a fascinating article that goes into the history of the pie fight in quite a lot of detail. Very much worth the read. Pie fights are said to have appeared on screen in film as early as 1909, so they were definitely perfect for the gay 90s theming of Gaslight Village. And as the story was told, the pie fights at Gaslight Village unfolded thusly. Quote, Every night at 7 p.m., we put on a skit about a lady getting her cat stuck in a tree. A drunk happened by, a keystone cop, a baker, a passerby, and a park announcer all took a pie in the face. They were all driven away in the old paddy wagon. Those were the days, the longest-running pie fight in the history of showbiz. End quote. Now, the next area that we really have to talk about that we've circled around quite a bit is the Opera House. The Opera House was the center of the park. It had a physical presence in the center of the park because it was originally the only location for bathrooms in the park in the early days, and it was the main place to get food, such as waffles with strawberries, beer, pizza, etc. It was the shortcut to get to the Cavalcade of Cars attraction. And it had room for over 400 people, so it was the place to wait out the rain and bad weather. And in the midst of all of this, of course, there were shows continuously being performed on the stages throughout all the chaos. The Opera House for a long time was the heartbeat of the park. Metaphorically, of course, as well, in addition to physically, since the Opera House was home to the park's star melodrama and it was said to be the last true vaudeville house in the United States. An article in 1976 described the opera house as, quote, dedicated to the production of the 1890s comic melodrama art form, encouraging the audience to hiss and boo in true melodrama fashion, the talented acting troops present a comedy sketch based on American satire, end quote. Magazine copy from the 80s wrote that the Opera House was the last remaining theater left in the US dedicated to the production of the traditional comic melodramatic art form. So, a melodrama, or a melodrama, calls for over the top hero and villain stories with intentionally corny jokes, the worse the better, and a lot of audience participation. In addition to the sketches and the melodrama performances, there were lots of mini skits and varieties of musical acts in between, like the Sunshine Express show band and banjo acts from the inimitable Warren Bowden. One story described how evenings would often wrap with Warren Bowden as the last player playing his banjo, ending with a fast polka. And one former band member recalled on the Facebook group how Warren would look at the bandstand and then say, to the blank, and he would name the bar where everyone would go that night after the show closed. The shows were a huge draw for the non-ride audience. A person could sit with a beer and watch without repeating an act for over two hours, over two hours of live entertainment. One person in the Gaslight Village Facebook group remembers the shows as the best part of the park, describing it thusly, quote, the family eating pizza and getting a pitcher of soda with the plastic Gaslight Village mugs, watching the Ice Review, and other great acts, end quote.
1: with you now? You know, you'd look an awful lot like my wife if it weren't for that mustache. I don't have a mustache. Yeah, but my wife does. Yeah. Will you just be quiet and just
0: listen? Oh, sure. the hammer down and just listen. Thank you. Start again.
1: It's impossible to tell the sun to leave oh, the that. sky. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Your first problem is you're too close to that microphone. How far should I be? You got
0: a car? Yeah. As I've alluded to several times now, it wasn't the rides that made Gaslight Village special or memorable. It was the sense of community you felt when you visited. Quote, One big reason Gaslight Village was so special was its employees. They were always friendly and helpful. End quote. Said one person online. Quote, one thing you noticed is that although everyone was working hard, it always looked like they were having a good time. End quote. The park was always sparkling clean, it seemed. And this was due to the hard work of the grounds boys, the cleaning staff, the lowest rung on the totem. But they were a part of the family, too, and they often moved up the ladder in their tenure of the park. Why, the inimitable Bob Carroll that we've already talked about, he started out as a grounds boy before he became an official entertainer at the park. Another person, a former employee, said, quote, "It was not like a real job. You left work at 11:30 p.m. and then went out to the bars or went to dinner. We had employee ride nights and entertainment nights." End quote. They contrasted it with the more standard theme park atmosphere over at Storytown, saying, quote, "It was a different atmosphere. People met friends, got married to each other, and just had a grand time. I know at least eight people who met their spouses there." End quote. Bob Carroll echoes this sentiment as well, and said to me, quote, We all had parties, birthdays, and a lot of us met our spouses there. It's now been 45 years of marriage to my wife, who I met when she was the parking lot attendant there. The Keystone cop married the French translator, and several other people married there too. End quote. Over and over, what I heard was that the general sentiment is that working at Gaslight Village was unlike any other job in the world. Employee morale was often high, it seems. Employees apparently had fairly free reign to make guests happy, and that's what they wanted to do. The Gaslight Village Facebook page describes the importance of events like Ride Night and Entertainment Night, which were held annually for the employees to mingle and get to know one another. On Entertainment Night, the entertainers performed for the rest of the park employees, while on Ride Night, the shoe was on the other foot, with the entertainers able to ride all the rides. Of course, there were plenty of free refreshments, too. Even though Gaslight Village was located in the village of Lake George, it's remembered for being its own separate place, a true small village of its own. Quote, Gaslight Village employees were a Gaslight Village family, no matter what you did. The tone came from the top, from Charlie Wood. I really appreciated the story one person told online about his reaction to the historic first steps of man on the moon. Of course, this occurred July 20th, 1969, and was broadcast live across the United States. It would have occurred at around 4 p.m. in New York on that day, and reportedly would close down all the rides and shows in the park for 20 to 30 minutes and had the moon landing broadcast throughout the park's speakers. Quote, all over the park, families and small groups of people stood, mesmerized by the voice describing man's first steps on another celestial body. Just the thought of listening to something that historic while you're in this beautiful picturesque surrounding of this 1890s theme park, it, it was really interesting. I really liked that. As always, though, what goes up must come down and nothing gold can stay. Gaslight Village saw a small handful of the regular kinds of accidents over the years, with notable incidents from my research being broken bones on the original Funhouse slide and on the Ferris wheel. A more well-known incident was a broken car on the paratrooper in the 1970s, which injured one person and required the entire ride to be slowed down, thus losing its thrilling nature. But none of these really had any significant effects on the parks as a whole. And again, in the mid-90s, around 1974, there were attendance worries due to the gasoline crisis, but by all accounts, the park bounced back. Truly, it wasn't any one incident that led to the eventual closure of Gaslight Village. As the 1970s rolled into the 1980s, large theme parks were beginning to take hold, drawing people from far away across the country. No longer was the regional theme park king, People were being drawn to these massive theme parks with larger and larger thrills, and they were flying longer distances for it with the rise of an increasingly inexpensive airfare. People simply weren't content with staying locally in the area anymore. The late 70s and early 80s saw the rise of the Six Flags theme park franchise as they acquired and expanded their parks. Disney World's Magic Kingdom, as we talked about the last episode, opened in 1971, and Epcot opened in 1982. Between 1982 and 1983 locally, the nearby Storyland USA acquired at least eight major adult thrill rides and rebranded itself as The Great Escape. Against this background, then, the gay 90s theme of Gaslight Village 2 seemed more anachronistic. It wasn't just yesterday's fun today anymore, as the slogan went. The rides were older. They were standard rides you'd find at almost every theme park. And the shows weren't having the same draw that they once did. There was no room for ride expansion to include a bigger coaster or just any other rides that might draw more people. And the weather, the weather was always a concern. Yes, there was the Opera House, but by the time a few hours had passed inside, a guest would have seen all the shows. So accounts from Gaslight Village Facebook page describing the park said that after a day or two of rain, just the whole park was a ghost town. And there was the age of Charlie Wood. Charlie Wood by this point would have been in his mid-70s, And it seems that perhaps his passions were turning to other things. 1989 actually saw him selling Storytown, USA. Amongst all these factors, attendance numbers for Gaslight Village in the mid to late 80s were dropping. Still dropping, way down. Something had to be done, or it would be the standard story here on the abandoned carousel. Not profitable enough to keep investing money in the park to keep it open. And there was a really big line item. There was a really big line item that could be used to balance the books. The operation budget for the entertainment alone in the late 80s was said to be tens of thousands of dollars per week. That's a lot of money. So, the decision came down that in 1989, Gaslight Village, as it was known, would be closed. The entertainment acts were told first. See, it wasn't that the whole park was closing— it was that the opera house and the outdoor stage and all of the entertainment were closing. The park would now be rebranded and would only include rides. In an account from online, quote, "It was the end of vaudeville. I think it was what it felt like when the last theaters closed." End quote. They went on to say, quote, "The shows started at 2 p.m. and ended at 10:50 p.m. seven days a week. It was like the engine of a train." It was the lifeline of the park. Yes, the rides were a big part of it, but the real soul of the park was the people who came to the park to see the shows. A lot of people came week after week to see the shows. We got to know them by name. End quote. And the Gaslight Village Facebook page summed it up saying, quote, we knew it wasn't going to be Gaslight Village because without the Opera House, it was just rides. End quote. Now, funnily enough, There's not a lot of clarity online about the more recent iterations of the theme park, the post-Gaslight Village era. Despite being more recent, you'd think there'd be more stuff online. Most of my online research about the place doesn't even mention the Ride and Fun Park name. I'm actually really thankful to the enthusiasts for The Great Escape in particular— who've kept tangential tabs on the park due to the connections between the Great Escape and Lake George Ride and Fun Park, Lake George Action Park. So, what happened? It's clear that from 1989 on, Gaslight Village, as it was, was gone. They split the park in half. Half of it remained a theme park, and half of it became a parking lot for the new boat on the lake that was docked close by. What remained was known as Lake George Ride and Fun Park first, reportedly from 1990 to 1992. And during this time, a few more rides were brought in. The dates are not super clear, but I've seen reference to two different swinging boat rides. There was a pirate that later went to Great Escape, and then a space shuttle-themed boat ride. Um, There was a balloon trip spinning flat ride and a Dumbo-type elephant ride. And like I said, some of these might have been added in the later years of Gaslight Village. It's honestly just not quite clear. And really, truly, to be honest, there's not much to say about Ride and Fun Park. I found a brochure for this aspect of the park, and I'll include a link in the show notes. But overall, it was just mostly the same rides, no entertainment, and it seems like it was just kind of okay. Okay. And clearly the audience felt the same way because the park shut down in 1992. And after Ride and Fun Park shuttered in 1992, it sat closed for several years. In late 1994 or early 1995, a Sea Dragon swinging boat ride, so that's now the third swinging boat ride, uh, moved from the Great Escape over to what we'll now be calling Action Park, Lake George Action Park. And there it reportedly sat racked up for two years until the short-lived Action Park opened in 1996. And it's uh, surprising that there's so much detail about this particular ride, but um, the Sea Dragon in its years at Action Park was praised in the forums that I found for having such an exceptionally good swing. So there's that. It's also known that there was a small powered dragon coaster at Action Park and possibly at one of the earlier iterations for at least a short time. And this is actually one of the only um, items on the roller coaster database page for the park. And this was just you've seen this kind of dragon coaster at a lot of parks. It's one of Zamperla's more common models. There wasn't anything particularly special about it. Now, what they did add for Action Park was a go-kart track, and this was basically one of the main features of the new Action Park. A guest remembers online, quote, The Action Park had really decent rides. The bumper cars were one of the best, and both go-kart tracks were top-notch. The oval track in the back was cool because you were actually enclosed in the car, and we would pour baby powder on the turns so that the cars could skid, end quote. Another guest remembers, quote, the majority of the crowd was always at the front go-kart track. The line would usually be about 30 minutes or so. That's how crowded it was. Plus, the timer was set for nine minutes, so you actually got your $4 worth. End quote. They go on to say, quote, The park was cool because it really was never all that crowded. End quote. And... It's true, because at the end of the 1997 season, possibly unsurprisingly after only two years of operation, Action Park closed, and that was that. With the turn of the century into the 2000s, it was time for another classic theme park auction. As always, I am eternally grateful to the enthusiasts who not only save things like auction catalogs and, you know, keep them for themselves, but also post and caption them and share them freely with others. It's such an incredible boon in this day and age to be able to find these things. I mean, a a 20-year-old auction catalog, how cool is that? In 2000, Norton's auctioned off the remaining Gaslight Village Action Park items. It seems like it was a pretty big auction based on the catalog's listings. And not only were Action Park rides sold, but there were some things from Storytown USA. And they even sold some of Charlie Wood's old car collection, the original bicycle museum collection from the Gaslight Village, etc. And so thus my favorite part and, you know, the reason why I started this podcast in the first place. I love the genealogy of the theme park attraction, tracing the connections between one place and another. So some of these things we've already kind of discussed fairly in depth. They were demolished, or simply their, their fate was unknown, even prior to the closure of Gaslight Village. And these are things like the Mystery House, the Bicycle Carousel, Flight to Mars. Other rides are well known to have gone to Woods Sister Park prior to the auction, back to the still operational Storytown, where... As we've referred to, it's now called the Great Escape, and by this point, it was owned by Six Flags, which it still is. In this category of rides are the Pirate Boat Ride, the Flying Trapeze Swing Ride, and the Trabant. The last of these was actually moved to Great Escape around 1993, and it actually operated there until it was forced to be removed, quote-unquote, due to age, in 2011. The pirate ship operated at the Great Escape from 1995 to 2013, according to Wikipedia. And as far as I can tell, the same flying trapeze swinging uh, carousel ride still operates there today. And the other real place that we know where several of the rides went is actually a place called Del Grosso's in Tipton, New Jersey. And this includes the balloon ride and our friend the Sea Dragon both of which are located next to one another at Del Grosso's or were located because it does seem that between sometime between 2017 and 2019, as I'm recording this, the rides are not actually in operation there and are no longer listed on their website. Gaslight Village's second carousel, the double-decker version, was reportedly purchased by a private buyer and has been in storage somewhere in Vermont since then. There was somewhat of an effort, according to a local newspaper article, about possibly getting it back to be a part of the conservation park, which is now on the site, but it does seem like this fell through. There was only one article that really referenced this at all. Of the cavalcade of cars, I could only really find information on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, though it appears that several of the other cars might have moved through multiple auctions. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was auctioned in 1990 and it was displayed at a Chicago restaurant called The Retreat for several years until that restaurant went bankrupt. In 2007, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was auctioned again and went to live with a collector in Florida where it's currently undergoing restoration. Beyond these items, the buyers of the remaining rides and attraction components aren't easily or readily available online. And with the rides sold... Nothing but the buildings remained. As the buildings sat, moldering through long New York winter after long New York winter, let's again ponder the park's closure. Why the drawn-out years of this smaller, sadder park? Wood was getting older, as we've already discussed, and it does seem that his interests were turning away from amusement parks toward philanthropy. Some people suggest that there were possible legalities in Charliewood's contract with the village regarding the land, potentially preventing him from passing the park on or selling it. But the details about this are unclear, so this is kind of speculation. Even the process of making the conservation park, which we're about to get into, took decades and plenty of local political squabbles. But... The writing was on the wall apparently as early as 1988, with a local news article reporting that Wood was in negotiations to sell Gaslight Village for a convention center. The convention center, of course, never went forward. Gaslight Village, or Lake George Action Park as it was last known, sat abandoned for a decade. The rides were all gone. A sign remained for some time as did the bold blue and white paint on the entrance. Grass grew, rain fell, and the buildings went ever further into disrepair. It's always the same story when it comes to abandoned parks, it seems. Flaking paint, overgrown grass, broken things. Especially when the rides have all been removed, it's often hard to see the charm of the original site. From the exterior, it all just looks like sad, shabby buildings.
1: A sad reminder of Charliewood Where fifteen acres of fun one stood Silence replaces amusement sounds Nature's debris blankets the ground Who could forget the Keystone Cup The opera house and antique props The Miller dramas, in Ice Review clouding around with vaudeville fools. Such a shame, shame how, how the times have changed. Long and full days that no longer remain. Only haunts remain of his old-time village. Vintage fixtures systematically pillaged. Every attraction has been auctioned off. Only A few structures are still intact, each stirring up fawn flashbacks. But the 1890s atmosphere is sadly to suddenly disappeared. Such a shame how the times have changed. long in for days that no longer remain. As of
0: 2008, the land was purchased from the Charles Wood Foundation. It was purchased jointly with the town and village of Lake George taking 19% ownership of the land, and with the county taking 62% ownership of the land. Three environmental groups held a conservation easement on the property, and plans were in place to convert the former Gaslight Village into a, quote, wetland treatment facility to improve the water quality of Westbrook and Lake George, while also creating a staging area for festivals, end quote. It took almost a decade between the abandonment of the park before the purchase went through because of, or at least what seems like because of, the disagreements between the various groups about the funding and the true future use of the property. And it does seem like there were a lot of Maybe not squabbles isn't the right word, but negotiations and disagreements and meetings and meetings and meetings that continued after the land purchased. And newspaper reports described delays and delays and delays between the multiple parties that had the ownership stake in the land. The news reports about the park once it was open, the conservation park that is, called it a 10-year collaboration. But it seems that the multi-decade operation could have often been contentious more than collaborative. According to the paper, the original plans had called for restoration of the opera house and some of the other structures on the property. And so... The the paper records indicate that the town invested tens of thousands of dollars in the buildings, partially re-roofing the Opera House and actually tearing off the sides in order to begin preparation for its use as an open-air building to be used for festivals and events, kind of like a permanent tent or a permanent pavilion. However, in early 2010, demolition plans moved forward with these original buildings, despite the money that the town had already invested. It seems like investigation had deemed that the structures were too badly damaged, and they said it would cost the same or less to demolish it all and build a new modern building than to try and repair the decaying original structures and bring them up to modern standards. And it it seems like it was truly just a committee vote that went one way instead of another. Ultimately, Mother Nature really took care of it. Snow collapsed part of the roof for the Opera House in February 2011 before the demolition crews could even begin, and the remainder of the buildings were demolished later that spring. Originally, the park was going to be called Westbrook Environmental Park. After an offer from the Charles R. Wood Foundation to donate three quarters of a million dollars to the park, the name was changed to Charles R. Wood Park. We haven't really gotten into it yet, but towards the end of his life, Wood turned to philanthropy as a more major focus. He was known for wanting to own places where people were happy, and this began to broaden beyond the theme park scope. Quote, I made money here, and I want to leave it here. End quote. Wood once said, In the early 1990s, Wood got in touch with Paul Newman, yes, that Paul Newman, and boldly requested money to begin the Double H Ranch, a free camp for children with serious illnesses. He also founded the Charles R. Wood Foundation, which, quote, focuses on assisting children who are critically ill and furthering culture for future generations, end quote. Before his death in 2004, and afterwards through his foundation, he donated millions to hospitals, clinics, libraries, and just otherwise invested in the lives of the people in his area. On the acres of land where Gaslight once stood are now two and a half acres of festival grounds, waterways, a skateboard course, a kid's playground, and hiking and fitness trails. The bulk of the land was returned to wetlands, which the area once was prior to being filled in for the timber mills and railroads, which were even there prior to Gasly Village. Though some people find the wetlands unsightly, they do apparently serve as natural filters to maintain the clear water of our friend Lake George. A local man donated one of the signs from his collection, his vintage Gaslight Village memorabilia sign, and it now stands on one portion of the conservation park site, marking what was once there, making sure that the memory of Gaslight Village lives on. One account online called Gaslight Village an odd and wonderful place, which is a phrasing I really love. Quote, The secret of Gaslight's appeal to me is the notion of a temporary community involved in one enterprise, show business. It's like a play or building a sandcastle. You rehearse, you memorize, you screw up in the name of this ephemeral art that will wash away. But we were there. We sang, we told jokes, booed the villain, juggled, swallowed fire, did toe loops. We worked with skating chimpanzees, poodles, and doves. There were clowns and brass bands and a guy who played with Paul Whiteman. End quote. But in the end, Gaslight Village remains something special, a community, a place that's more about the people than the buildings or rides or even the land. Charles R. Wood is quoted as saying, quote, we do what we can for society, but it must come from our heart, end quote. And Gaslight Village really seems like it did embody that. It was a unique moment in time. Yesterday's fun Today.
1: Such a shame how the times have changed. Longing for days that no longer remain. Such a shame how the times have changed. Longing for
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where I had a really good time talking about the history of the unique Gaslight Village. Yesterday's fun, today. I'd like to particularly thank Bob Carroll for being an inexhaustible resource on the topic of Gaslight Village, and just a very nice person. He's got an incredible archive of videos on his YouTube page and on the Gaslight Village Facebook page. I recommend you check them both out. It's his photos that are appearing throughout the show notes page, and I really appreciate him letting me share his images. I'd also like to thank all the admins and just the general members of the Gaslight Village Facebook page. It's such an incredible resource on the topic of this delightful park, and I'm really grateful that there is a place to gather and share memories of this special place. I'd also like to thank Brian Dorn, Addison Rice, and Janavi Newsom, also known as The Love Sprockets, for allowing the use of their song, The Ballad of Gaslight Village and Frontier Town. Their work beyond this song is delightful to listen to, so please check them out. As always, you can find all of the resources I used in preparing this episode linked from my show notes page on my website, which is theabandonedcarousel.com. You can also find a rough transcript and plenty of photos and supplemental info. For this episode, please go directly to theabandonedcarousel.com backslash twenty five. I'm always happy to hear from you, either with corrections, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. My contact info is on my website, theabandonedcarousel.com. The best way to get in touch with me is through email. I really enjoyed researching and recording this episode. My recording schedule and my research schedule is a little bit tighter around the holidays, so there's probably only going to be one more episode before the end of the year. But I hope the depth of my research allows you to forgive a less regular posting schedule, quality over quantity, and all of that. So all of that housekeeping out of the way, I will sign out. Remember what Lucy Maud Montgomery once said. Nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it.